Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real-life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey everybody, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. On today's podcast, we're going to be talking about the most common arrhythmia and why it's so problematic. We've all cared for patients with atrial fibrillation, but by fully understanding what's going on with the heart and AFib, we can take such better care of our patients. So I have invited an expert to the show to talk through this diagnosis with you all. Dr. G, welcome to the Rapid Response RN podcast. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm humbled and honored by your invitation. Uh, So again, thank you for having me. Oh, so happy to have you. I heard you on someone else's podcast. I was like, oh, I like her. I got to get her on mine. All right. So before we dive into the story, I wanted to give you a minute to introduce yourself to my audience. Uh, Dr. G, the NP, is her social media handle and business name. But Dr. G is also Nurse Trenise. So can you tell my listeners about where you started out as a nurse and what led you to become Dr. G, the NP? Certainly. Um, I will give you the annotated version. Um, okay. <laughs> So um, I did undergrad nursing like like most of us did. And it's actually funny. I remember the cardiology test specifically and I failed it. And I said, I'm never going to be doing cardiology. <laughs> <laughs> and then here we are. Um, not only am I doing cardiology, I did my doctoral dissertation in hypertension management and I won an award for it um, for my awesome. doctorate degree. So yeah, so it's just funny how life is. I always say you should be open to new experiences and not just pigeonhole yourself. Um, but yes, I started as a med tele nurse. Um, I became very fascinated in cardiology, including EKGs. Um, I, I tell the story on other podcasts. A teletech took me under her wing because uh, I was obsessed with the strips. And I said, hey, is this something a nurse needs to know how to do? She laughed at me and says, nurses don't know how to read strips. So at that point, I decided I will be a nurse. You're like, I'll show <laughs> you. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, you know, worked as a floor nurse for four years. Fast forward, I enrolled in the University of Arizona's uh, BS in the DMP program with an acute care um, nurse practitioner specialty. Um, As I said, I did my research in hypertension, uh, had clinical rotations, the whole nine. Uh, Graduated in 2017 and got my first job as an MP, as a cardiology MP. And I'm still at that practice uh, presently. Um, And I also am an adjunct professor part-time as well in addition to my own consulting business for nurses. Awesome. Well, you are perfectly suited for the podcast today. You bring a wealth of knowledge to the table. I'm really excited to talk through this rapid response call with you. As am I. (laughs) So here's the scenario. Uh, I kind of just want to like tell you the story and we can kind of pause intermittently and break it down a little bit more. All right. So um, here's one AFib RVR scenario that I responded to, but honestly, I have like a hundred more just like it because I get so many AFib RVR emergencies. So I'm gonna tell you about our call. I'm gonna call the patient Mr. Fib, but that's obviously not his name. He was a six-year-old man admitted with a COPD exacerbation. His medical history included hypertension, hyperlipidemia, AFib, for which he was taking medications for all four diagnoses. Uh, steroid and bronchodilator nebulizers for the COPD, 
beta blockers for the hypertension, statin for the cholesterol, and coumadin for the AFib to prevent clots. Uh, when I arrived to his room, his heart rate was in the like 170s to 180s. Upon quick assessment, he's pink, warm, dry, alert, oriented, denies chest pain, but does report a little shortness of breath. He is hemodynamically stable, but his blood pressure is a little soft, like 90 over 50. So the nurse says to me, I called the resident about the heart rate, but he says he doesn't feel comfortable giving anything right now because his blood pressure is so low. He said to call him if the heart rate grows above 185, but I feel like 180 probably needs an intervention, so I called you, Sarah. So before I go any further, Trinice, how do you feel about just leaving a patient with a heart rate of 180? Um, to be honest with you, I don't think I've ever let anyone's heart rate get to 180 <laughs> before. Um, that That is a bit jarring, in my opinion. Um, I probably would have inter intervened or called for help probably sooner than the 180 to be transparent. So, all right. Yeah. I mean, agreed. I think why she didn't like sound the alarm initially because he was so stable, like he had no complaints. They were showing us a breath. He was awake and alert, but yeah, agreed. It, it needs to be addressed. So, um, <clears throat> let's just talk a few minutes about AFib so that we can better understand it like why it gets so fast, why is that problematic? So Trenise, how would you describe AFib, um, both what is happening physiologically with the heart and also what it looks like on the ECG strip? Well, um, great question, Sarah. Uh, I like to talk about this in a couple of my lectures because I do um, break down AFib strips uh, all the time. Um, I always tell people to envision. So, you know, you have the atria at the top part of the heart, ventricles at the bottom. So AFib is basically a quiver, okay? so you're not getting those nice strong pumps, right? We know in normal sinus rhythm, we like top, bottom, top, bottom, like nice strong pumps, okay? Very, very synchronous, I guess is a good word to use. But when you're in fib, you're basically quivering, right? You're quivering and it's very, very fast. So obviously the heart isn't gonna be able to get all of that conduction through the AV node down to the ventricles. Um, that's, you need time for repolarization and all of that. So only a couple of the electricity, electrical pulses, excuse me, get through that. So that's why it's so disjointed because it's a quiver and some of them get through. Most of them don't, thank goodness, but some of them get through. So correspondingly, when you look at an EKG strip, you see this irregularity. You see like this, this fibrillation, if you will, like a quivering, almost like the heart is quivering. And so on the EKG, you have this quiver. You cannot make out discernible P waves. Um, so that's kind of hand in hand with patho versus the EKG. Perfect. Um, and then a patient who has that quivering atrium, what types of symptoms might they come into your office complaining of? Um, a, wide, a wide array of things. So initially they may just say they have palpitations. Um, some people may say they get short of breath. Um, some people may say they're lightheaded or dizzy. Um, the symptoms that we don't like to hear are things like, um, having any weight gain or something like that, because obviously if the heart is quivering, it's not pumping properly, fluid gets backed up, then you're talking about a heart failure situation. So we obviously like to avoid things like swelling, um, weight gain, um, and even some shortness of breath can be expected with some AFib, but if it's progressing, we're, we're worried about them decompensating that left ventricle for sure. Gotcha. So when a patient comes into your clinic and they have AFib, what risk are you trying to mitigate? Like what therapies do you prescribe? Kind of how do you manage the patient on the outpatient side? 
So first and foremost, we look at the, the rate um, because you can be in a fib, but if they're tolerating it and the rate is reasonable, kind of leave them alone. Now, yes, they do have to be anticoagulated, but if they're rate controlled and they're asymptomatic, it's not really much for you to do. The next juncture on that is, well, let's say they're in AFib, but their rate is high. Then we're either going to want to throw on um, a beta blocker or a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, verapamil, diltiazem, whatever. Um, we also like to get, especially if they're not in control, we like to get an echo as well to assess that LV function so that we're not um, getting into the woods, uh, so to speak, we'll just say that. Um, and some patients are candidates to have cardioversions or even ablations. Um, it just kind of depends on the individual situation and scenario. Um, but it really comes down to, can they tolerate AFib? If they can tolerate it and it's just, a, it's too fast, we'll slow them down. But if they can not tolerate the rhythm itself, then we're looking at rhythm control versus rate control. Good. So physiologically, what is going on? What's so different about AFib that causes people to feel that lightheadedness or the weakness, or they, they just can't have the same stamina they used to have? What's happening physiologically there? Well, a couple of things. Um, one, we know about atrial kick, right? So um, it's kind of like this force that's generated during the contraction phase with the atria. Um, so it typically occurs late in systole. So you kind of need that little extra bump. We'll call it a a little bump, okay, to get the blood flow, to get into the atria, to the ventricle. Well, if you're in AFib, you may lose some of that kick. So if I lose some of that kick, um, I don't have the ability to um, perfuse, is a good word, perfuse properly. And that can cause an increased pressure gradient, um, particularly across the mitral valve. And again, that can eventually lead to heart failure, um, amongst other things. But we're really worried about them decompensating from that perspective. Absolutely. Right. So I remember in nursing school learned about AFib and I just assumed that the lightheadedness, the weakness was just from tachycardia and decreased cardiac output from tachycardia. But then I learned about atrial kick. I was like, oh, we need atrial kick. It helps us. I actually heard a study that they feel like it contributes to about 30% of cardiac output. So when you lose wow. that atrial kick, whenever you don't have the synchronous atrium, the ventricle, H in the ventricle, 30% cardiac output drop. That's a big difference. Absolutely. I actually have a friend who's a marathon runner and super healthy. And he went into AFib. And he's like, I can't, I can't run anymore. I don't have the same umph to run. And so mm -hmm. that had to do a cardioversion and ablation just so he could have the same stamina he had before. His rate wasn't the issue. It was more the cardiac output issue that really affected him. So yeah, thank you. So Trenise, have you ever had a patient in the outpatient environment that without even seeing an EKG, their symptoms alone made you think maybe this person's an AFib? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'll tell a quick story. So um, this lady comes in um, complaining of some shortness of breath and she was known to us. This wasn't somebody, she actually has heart, had heart failure. Uh, it was controlled, but she had heart failure, but she was having problems with shortness of breath. So, you know, obviously that's concerning. She um, informed us she saw her PCP twice. Um, the first time, because she had an underlying history of also asthma, they actually prescribed her like a different bronchodilator and that didn't do anything. And then they suspected, well, maybe you have an upper respiratory thing going on. So she got antibiotics and that didn't do anything. So she came to us and on our patients, like 99% of the time you're getting an EKG. And so the EKG slides across my desk and I'm like, I know why you're having shortness of breath. You're an AFib. And so it just goes to show that 
Unfortunately, um, because a lot of people are not comfortable with EKG interpretation, they avoid it. And that's something that we cannot do as providers. Um, we have to take the responsibility of owning that, um, honing our skills, that way we can get better patient outcomes. If you have somebody um, with a high chads vas score and they're not anticoagulated, they have a five-fold risk for stroke. Um, and then she had other risk factors for stroke as well, including being obese, hypertension, um, diabetic, you know, the, the, the standard stuff that increases stroke risk. Um, so it just goes to show that a simple EKG can delineate and she wouldn't have got a bronchodilator. She wouldn't have gotten an antibiotic um, at all. <laughs> so, And all the GI upset that goes with it. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. So what is it about atrial fibrillation that puts these patients at such risk for clots? Well, a couple of things. We have to look at really why. So if you think about someone who has underlying valvular disorder, that's going to automatically predispose them for clotting, okay? Specifically, you think about things like um, mitral stenosis, for example, um, particularly if they have a history of rheumatic fever um, and that sort of thing, they're at an increased risk. So if their AFib is due to valvular disorder, then yeah, that's going to put them at an increased risk so much so that the novel anticoagulation you cannot use in valvular AFib. You got to go old school with uh, Coumadin slash Warfarin in those people. Absolutely. Um, but there's a plethora of things that make people at risk for AFib. Um, I was reading one article and actually referred to AFib as a disease of prestige because the older you get, the more your chances increase of getting AFib. And there's other things as well. Hypertension, underlying cardiomyopathies, coronary disease, even pulmonary disease, because you think about how you can end up with um, atrial myopathy and having the, the big atria, having a, a disfigured atria puts you at risk for AFib. So, you know, there, there's several underlying ideologies that kind of are a piece of the puzzle, and it's almost like a perfect storm situation. Right. But then why, why do they get the blood clots is a question. What's the, what's the connection there between blood clots and AFib? So the way I describe it to patients is this. So if I'm quivering, okay, I'm supposed to pump. So if I pump strong, that strong pump is going to force blood out, okay? If I'm quivering, blood is going to sit and pool, presumably at the bottom of the atria. So when blood doesn't move, it gets sticky and it clots. And the worst thing that can happen is, you know, you're fibbing, 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 and then, oh, all of a sudden I'm out of, I'm not fibbing anymore. I'm sinus. I just give a nice strong pump and I just shoot out a clot. And so the fact that the blood isn't moving, that is really the underlying um, physiology on why they need to be anticoagulated. Um, right. Some research also shows that um, there's a therapy with the, um, with the left atrial appendage showing that that's how, you know, a lot of the, um, the clot, so to, so to speak, if you can occlude they hide. that. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and there's like a watchman device. And, you know, there's some patients, unfortunately, they're not able to be on anticoagulation. You think about somebody who maybe had a big hemorrhagic head bleed, for example, you clearly are not going to want to do anticoagulation in that patient. So they may be, um, they may be a good candidate for a watchman or someone who falls frequently. You know, if you're falling every week, you know, that's not conducive to really anticoagulation. So there's options out there for patients. Absolutely. But of course, we have to um, have that discussion with them and, and engage, you know, that on a case by case basis. So. 
Perfect, perfect. Thanks for breaking that down. So before we move on, I'm going to do a quick summary of all of it. So AFib is where the atrium is just quivering, the ventricles receiving some of the messages and carrying through, that's whenever the ventricle squeezes. It tends to become tachycardic, which is a problem. And then the other issue is there's loss of atrial kick, so decreased cardiac output from that. And then because the atrium is just quivering and not squeezing all the way, little blood clots start to form and hide in the atrial appendage. And so if that patient were to convert to sinus rhythm, those little clots are going to be showered everywhere. But even in AFib, they can still send little clots into different places, most likely the brain. That's where it usually goes. All right, so um, atrial fibrillation can be controlled with rate control medications and with some sort of blood thinner, um, but it's still problematic. Some patients might need to be taken out of it. So let's talk back to this patient. All right, so back to Mr. Fib. Um, I told the nurse, I agreed, his heart rate of 180 needed to be addressed because even though he's stable now, that heart rate is not sustainable. His baseline blood pressure was hypertensive. So the fact that his blood pressure was less than 100 systolic says to me that he's already feeling the effects of decreased cardiac output. So I called the resident myself, and I probably said the same exact thing that the primary nurse had said, just I wouldn't let him off the phone without a plan for adjusting the heart rate. So I said, hey, doctor, this is Sarah from the rapid response team. Your patient, Mr. Fib, his heart rate's in the 180s. He is hemodynamically stable at this time with regards to mentation and perfusion but his blood pressure is trending down. And I know you said you feel uncomfortable giving any rate control drugs right now because of his hypotension, but the way I see it, his blood pressure is gonna keep dropping if we don't slow his heart rate. So what medication would you like me to administer? He said, okay, I'll be right there. So here is a common conundrum that I encounter as a nurse at a teaching hospital. Pardon me while I just touch on this issue really quick, because I know a lot of nurses deal with this. So often, I know exactly what the patient needs. Like I've been doing this for 18 years. This first year resident, he just got his white coat. I get that. So I could A, be condescending and tell him what to do because it's obvious, it's the obvious therapy to me. Or I could B, wait for him to come up with it himself. So here's where I land on this one. If I have a stable patient, I wait for the resident to think it through, consider all their options, Google it, whatever they have to do to develop a plan of care. And I might ask like a leading question to help encourage them towards the end goal of whatever evidence-based treatment that I have in mind, but I won't write out, tell them what to do. But if a patient's unstable, I do not wait for them to consider all the options. I am forceful and clear and directive. For example, doctor, we need to start a vasopressor. They are not responding to the fluid bolus, or that is a shockable rhythm. We need to defibrillate now or this patient needs to go to the OR, they are too unstable for another CAT scan. But in this patient's case, he was stable. I mean, yes, he's tachycardic, but he was still talking to me and pink and warm and just mildly shorter breath. So I knew I had some time for the resident to check all of his resources and call his superior and come up with a plan. So I waited. So what's your take on this issue, Trinice? I mean, you were to the bedside and now you work alongside cardiologists, what do you do when they take the watch and wait approach, but you feel like you need to be more aggressive? Um, I, I, I would have to say in this situation, I probably would have been a little bit more forceful. Um, 180s makes me incredibly uncomfortable. And I mean, at this point, you, it, it's kind of a waiting game, right? Like it's not if he decompensates, it's when. Like if we sit, if we sit and we do absolutely nothing, this person will decompensate. And 
earlier in the case, how you mentioned how he was hypertensive and now he's extremely hypotensive. And now he's starting to have shortness of breath. Um, So I probably would have done a more middle option and kind of said, um, okay, well, can we try maybe doing this to see if we can get a better outcome? Um, I think I would have been a little bit more forceful and and, and for that patient because that 180 makes me incredibly uncomfortable. It like, I'll be honest with you, it makes me very, very uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I think I've just seen so many patients in the 180s and they compensate really well until they don't. <laughs> but yes, I, I agree. So back to Mr. Fib, I, I waited for the doctor. I didn't push him too hard, but honestly, it didn't, it didn't take him too long. He came to the bedside. He basically shared with me how every rate controlling drug he could think of would drop the patient's blood pressure, to which I responded, yes, that is correct. But if we can control his rate, his blood pressure would no longer be a problem. If he has more time to fill his ventricle, his stroke volume will increase. And with that, his cardiac output and his blood pressure. So if you want, I can give a fluid bolus to bump his blood pressure a few points, and I'll push the med super slow and check the blood pressure midway just to be extra, extra careful. So he called a surgery resident to make sure that's okay, and finally agreed to give the order for daltaizen, which was what I wanted to give in the first place. So immediately after I pushed the last milliliter, his heart rate dropped to 105, his blood pressure bumped to 120 over 70. It is amazing what giving the heart time to fill does for cardiac output. Within 10 minutes, the fluid bolus had finished and his heart rate came down to 90s. He was no longer short of breath. His blood pressure was back to baseline. Yay. All right, so let's talk a little more about the pathophysiology and treatment of AFib. Um, There's a lot of options out there. How do you choose which medication is best for the patient? Well, I can say in an outpatient setting, um, it really kind of depends upon the history. For example, um, if I have someone with some very, very bad asthma or COPD or whatever, I may shy a little bit away from a beta blocker, although we have been known to try some beta specific ones and not so much alpha beta beta blockers. Um, But we routinely do um, diltiazem or cardizem, which is fun. Uh, I always say uh, I enjoy the AV nodal blocking agents, and that's what's cool about beta blockers and non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. Slow down the electricity through the AV node, calm down the heart rate, absolutely. And that's really the difference between your dihydropyridines, which we think of things like amylodipine, bilodipine, nifedipine, all of those, they do not have the AV nodal blocking properties that things like doltiazem um, and verapamil have. So um, I know that's one thing I struggled with when I was brand new. I was like, wait a second, there's two, ba- there's two different types of calcium channel blockers. <laughs> so so yeah just understanding that we need av nodal blocking properties to slow down the heart absolutely yeah and for this patient it worked perfectly in fact his blood pressure got better we're always so worried about giving oh my gosh it's gonna drop the blood pressure but if we can slow the heart rate down it actually improves the blood pressure so um i remember being a new nurse and you know you learn nursing school like be very careful if the blood pressure is low give me a blood pressure patient's blood pressure i still remember this it was 89 over like 45. Wow. and the doctor's like give the cardizem and i was like doctor i don't feel comfortable giving the cardizem he's like i promise you sarah i'm not leaving the room once you give this medication it's going to help the blood pressure and he was right <laughs> because once we saw the heart rate down the patient actually really improved so i would never give the, heart, the blood pressure was like 70 systolic but if we have a good uh, map and the patient is perfusing and talking to you then it's a little more understandable all righty um so when would you 
not try to convert a patient out of AFib to sinus rhythm. I mean, that sounds like it's the ideal thing, right? Let's, let's convert them out to sinus rhythm. So like who is a candidate for chemical or electrical cardioversion and who is not? So it kind of goes back to what we said earlier. Can the person tolerate AFib? Just because you don't like something doesn't mean that someone can't tolerate it, right? Um, speaking of blood pressure, my blood pressure runs 90 over 50. Every time I go somewhere, are you feeling okay? Feeling fine. I'm good. So, you know, you can be an AFib, right? If you're perfusing, you're not getting into heart failure. You can be an AFib. It's okay. Now, patients that have been in AFib for long periods of time, they're usually not the best candidates to do cardioversions on. The longer someone's in AFib, the harder it's going to be to get back to non-AFib. So on the inpatient side, it all comes down to the ability to confirm anticoagulation status. So if someone comes to the ER with a history of AFib and or, or they say they're having heart palpitations for a while, we need to first confirm they're fully anticoagulated, do an echo, take a look before we would ever attempt converting someone from AFib to normal sinus rhythm. We would not want to shoot a little clot out somewhere where we don't want it to get lodged. So we more focus on rate control and actually try to avoid converting the patient's sinus rhythm until we've done a, a better workup on the patient. So we'll do labs and echo, make sure they're very low risk for throwing a clot before cardioversion is scheduled. So final question, is there anything you would want a new nurse to know about AFib or managing cardiac patients in general? Um, in regards to AFib, the number one thing, if you find somebody in AFib and they're newly in FIB, please make sure they're anticoagulated. That is huge. Um, I think when you look at the broad picture and you look at the vitals, it's kind of easy to say, oh, well, he's tachycardic. Or clinically, you say, oh, well, he's short of breath. Like you're not going to miss those things, but you don't want to miss putting them on anticoagulation because um, we need to make sure that we do not have strokes and we avoid clots. So that's what I would say, because I think sometimes I might get forgotten the anticoagulation. Good, good. Awesome. All right. Well, I think we covered all the teaching points that I wanted to touch on about AFib. I want my listeners to know where they can find you because a lot of people struggle with EKGs and desperately want to master it like you have. So can you tell them just quickly about the courses you provide and how they could sign up for it? Absolutely. So um, I have a website called drgthemp.com. Um, I currently right now have about six different EKG courses and my foundational course is called anatomy of the EKG. So I really work on giving people a systematic way to not be overwhelmed when you first look at, look at an EKG, because if you have a systematic approach, you follow that approach and you hone that skill. I always tell people, don't worry about speed in the beginning, get the understanding down, the speed will come later. All my other courses build on that. I'm talking about right bundles. I'm talking about left bundles. I'm talking about fascicular blocks. I'm Whoa. talking about old MIs. Um, I'm talking about non-sinus rhythms, including AFib and A-flutter paste beats. Um, I'm actually about to debut a course where I'm going to start talking about second degree blocks, winky block, and even a complete heart block, and some cool stuff like Brigada, Wolf Parkinson's wipe, that sort of thing, pre-excitation stuff. So um, I always tell every nurse I come in contact with, you have the skills to be able to read EKGs. You just haven't been shown. Do not beat yourself up over a skill you don't have because you weren't properly shown. I can show you how to do that. Like I said, get the foundation first and then I show you the rules. That's the only difference between me and, and other nurses. I know the rules. And so let me teach you the rules. So. 
That's awesome, Janish. I wish I had you when I was a new grad because it took so long to really like gather all that information and like really learn EKGs, so much stress. So oh, I wish I could have taken your course back then, but thank you so much for coming on my podcast and helping me teach about AFib. This has been, it's a bit of a good chat. Thank you so much for sharing your, your expertise with us. Well, thank you. Like I said, I, I really appreciate you um, having me on the podcast and I will piggyback on the last thing that you said. Um, one thing that I try to keep in mind when I develop content, what do I wish someone would have taught me? Yep. That's everything I develop is what do I wish someone would have taught me um, that would have made my learning and my experience better. So um, it's important to me that, you know, I'm giving back to our community. So that's awesome, Janice. Well, I hope today's episode fills in some of the gaps and gives nurses the confidence they need to advocate for their patients when they go into AFIB-RBR. Guys, I highly encourage you to check out Dr. G, the MP's course and level up your EKG skills. What you learn might help you save your patient's life. All right. Well, thanks, Janice. Have a good night. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsermpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponserm.com.